Good evening and welcome to the Institute for Government, both to our audience in the room and to those of you watching online. I'm Gemma Tetlow, Chief Economist here at the Institute for Government, and I'm really delighted this evening that we have Rachel Reeves joining us to talk about her new book, The Women Who Made Modern Economics. Um, I'm pretty sure Rachel probably needs no introduction to this audience, uh, but I will give her one anyway. Um, Rachel started her career working in economics, first at the Bank of England and then in the financial sector, before being elected to Parliament in 2010, and now serves as the Shadow Chancellor. And if Labour were to be elected in the next election, would be on course to be perhaps this country's first ever female Chancellor after 800 years. <laughs> And it's against that backdrop that Rachel has written this book about the women who made modern economics. Um, and it seems perhaps a pretty opportune time for this book to come out and to be having this conversation just a couple of weeks uh, since Claudia Golden became only the third woman to win the Nobel Prize for economics and actually the first to win in her own right rather than alongside a man at the same time. And what's more, she won for a lifetime of work on the labour market experiences of women. Um, so I think it's great that we can have this book and have this conversation against that backdrop. Um, just a few brief housekeeping notes before we uh, get into the conversation. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to put some questions to Rachel for about 25 minutes. We'll then have about 10 minutes of questions uh, from our audience. So if you're watching online, please do start putting in your questions using Slido. We are going to be live tweeting today's events from the at IFG events Twitter account uh, using the hashtag, hashtag IFG Reeves. So please do follow and tweet along. But Rachel, um, so why did you write this book? Oh, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me here this evening, uh, Gemma. Um, when I became Shadow Chancellor two and a half years ago, um, I, I thought about some of the women in economics who have influenced me, and I always feel that every generation of women are sort of standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. But it also made me reflect that in all my time working as an economist at the bank and at the, in the private sector, studying economics as an undergraduate and then for my masters and in the roles I've had in parliament, that actually there are quite very few women. And there's never been a female chancellor, there's never been a female governor of the Bank of England, there's never been a woman uh, top permanent secretary at the treasury. And so you do have to look a bit further afield for the women who um, inspire us. And actually, at university, I don't know about you, but I only studied one textbook that was co-written by a woman, um, Macroeconomics and the Wage Bargain by uh, Wendy Carlin and David Soskis. Um, and so I sort of wondered why it was that there were so few women in economics and whether we could write some of them back into our economic history, because some of them, Mary Paley Marshall, uh, for example, uh, Harriet Martineau, I feel have sort of been written out of our economic history. And, uh, and others, like uh, Joan Robinson or um, Eleanor Ostrom, I think more people should know about them. And there's also some brilliant women practitioners in economics today, from Janet Yellen um, in the States to Christine Lagarde at the European Central Bank uh, and, and others, um, the um, Kristalina Georgieva at the International Monetary Fund. And this book is a celebration of their achievements, but also, most of all, I hope it will give readers an idea of the sorts of policies that I would pursue if I had that opportunity to be the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And so you've already named several of the women there who feature in your book, but can you say a bit more? Who are some of the key women that you think have been a bit 
overlooked and what are we missing by kind of not valuing enough their contribution to economic thinking and policy? Yeah, so maybe I'll say like one who I strongly agree with, with and one who I, I don't agree with, but I still think that she deserves to be more prominent. Um, Joan Robinson was um, an economist at Cambridge University. She was part of what's called the Cambridge Circus of, um, uh, of economists that worked with uh, John Maynard Keynes. They met every week, um, four or five of them, to read and debate and discuss um, his work and then feed in to his next book. And in a way, they put their own careers on hold for a while to help John Maynard Keynes with his research and work. But she also made a big contribution in her own right. And she was the first ever economist to make an argument for a minimum wage. And she said that in the labour market, the dominance of a, a small number of big firms meant that workers weren't being paid the true value of the work that they do. And what you needed was stronger trade unions and a minimum wage. And for me, that was one of the proudest achievements of the last Labour government. But I think very few people know that the first person ever to argue for that minimum wage was Joan Robinson. The, the second woman who I would highlight is Anna Schwartz. And I expect everybody here has heard of Milton Friedman, uh, and Milton Friedman got the Nobel Prize for economics. But his key economic textbook was co-written with Anna Schwartz. And she didn't get the Nobel Prize, and she didn't get the recognition. And there's a great stroke awful quote from Milton Friedman said, it was an almost perfect partnership. Anna did almost all of the work, and I got almost all of the credit. <laughs> so a great partnership for him, but perhaps not so much for Anna Schwartz. Now, I'm not a monetarist. I don't agree with Schwartz or Milton Friedman, but I very much think that Anna Schwartz deserves half of that Nobel Prize and half of the credit for the important work and contribution that they've made to, to economic theory and policy. Yeah. I mean, as you said there for Anna Schwartz, she was working on some topics that... Milton Friedman, a man, was also working on. But I think you point in the book to some women who you think picked up on issues that perhaps had been a blind spot for male economists at the time. I think that is really true. So, again, you, know, you don't need to have women economists to uh, have someone making the case for um, equal pay or closing the gender pay gap. But the truth is, both in politics and economics, it has been women that have pursued those causes. So politically, of course, it was Barbara Castle who legislated in 1970 for equal pay. But it was women economists, again, particularly Mary Paley Marshall, who I think is the first um, woman, um, the first economist to, to write in detail about why there are differences between um, um, pay of men and women. Then Joan Robinson, along with the work she did on monopsony uh, employment and the minimum wage wrote about uh, the gender pay gap and I think it is just fair to say that unless there are women in the room and women at the you know economic table a lot of issues will be neglected it's the same in politics as well you know the key uh, advances for women in politics I think have been driven by women in politics you know not least Harriet Harman and the amazing work that she did on the Equality Act uh, and on tackling domestic violence uh, but you know also women like um, um, Barbara Castle who you know I say in the book um, Still today, we have a gender pay gap of 15%. We may have equal pay legislation, and that has made a massive difference. We still have a gender pay gap of 15%. I want to be the Chancellor that closes that pay gap once and for all. And what, what would you do? What do you think are the priorities for doing that? Well, if you look at all the evidence and all the data, the gender pay gap really starts um, developing when uh, women have children. Up until then, pay of men and women are pretty equal. Uh, and it's not until that stage. And the argument, I, I think, is we need better childcare. 
more affordable, more flexible childcare for men and women. But the truth is, and we saw this during the pandemic, it is still primarily women that do the majority of the, uh, of, of the childcare. And if we want to ensure that women can make a full contribution, we need better childcare. And that's what you see in countries that have a lower gender pay gap. So that is the first priority for me in closing that, that, that gender pay gap. I mean, that's obviously one aspect of what you diagnose as being some of the pro economic problems that we face as a country now. But as you say, part of the reason for writing this was to help you think about and the, the kind of ideas that have shaped your own view on the economy. Can you say a bit more about your take on that, how the women mentioned in here have sort of helped to shape your thinking? Yes, well, one of the women who I write quite a lot about um, in one of the later chapters in the book is Janet Yellen, who was the first um, uh, female head of the Federal Reserve, the first female head of the Council of Economic Advisers, and the first Treasury Secretary, uh, female Treasury Secretary in the US. And I had the privilege of meeting uh, her when I was in Washington earlier this year. And I've spoken a lot about this idea that I call securonomics. And in some ways, that is based based on the modern supply side um, approach that Janet Yellen is taking. You know, Danny Roderick calls it productivism, she calls it modern supply side. I sort of call it securonomics and a modern industrial strategy. But the idea is that you expand the supply side capacity of the economy, uh, both to help create better paid jobs in all parts of the country, but also to make our national economy more secure and more resilient. You know, this idea that the fastest, the cheapest, the quickest, quickest is always the best, that it doesn't matter where things are made or who makes them. I think that that era is over. You know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine exposed how reliant we are, not just on Russia, but also on other countries that don't necessarily share our, our values for our basic energy needs. The growing assertiveness of China um, overseas and its oppression at home makes us realise that relying on China for the batteries that power will power our cars or the chips that uh, allow us to turn our computers on, I don't think we should be relaxed about that. I, I believe that the old uh, globalisation is dead and new multilateralism, multilateralism will take its place with countries whose values are closer aligned, um, working together to ensure their economies are more secure and more resilient. And a, a lot of that thinking has come from um, reading and speaking with uh, Janet Yellen and seeing what she's doing uh, in the US. You know, great stuff on uh, uh, securing for US the jobs and industries of the future, particularly around electric vehicles, but also clean energy production, but also um, ensuring that there is good childcare, including in the manufacturing sector, so that these good, well-paid jobs can be done by women as well as men. And the US is obviously quite a different country from the UK. It's much bigger. Um, how do you translate that sort of Janet Yellen's modern supply side from the US into a UK context? What looks different? Yeah, so that's why I think that, you know, multilateralism is incredibly important. We're not going to be able to do everything in the UK, but there's every reason to believe that Britain can be a global leader in some of these jobs and industries of the future. You know, our industrial heritage, our geography, our, our climate, our great universities are churning out fantastic entrepreneurs and researchers, uh, some of the businesses that are located here for green hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, floating offshore wind, tidal energy. There are massive opportunities, but 
every country now is in the race for these jobs and industries. And sometimes it feels like we're sort of still in the changing room arguing about the rules when other countries are on the second lap. And, you know, I don't want to, you know, for Britain to wake up in 20 years' time and find we're importing our, our, our gas because we didn't do green hydrogen here, that we're importing our cars because we didn't... Uh, um, move our supply chains to electric vehicles. And that's the lesson that I take from the Inflation Reduction Act, that when you've got a government that matches the scale of ambition that people have for their families and communities, that businesses have for the businesses they run, then you can do extraordinary things. And you're seeing other countries steal a march on us. Uh, and I want to be in that race and get the jobs and the industries here in Britain. I think one of the other things you pick up in the book is talking about valuing more highly many of the roles that women carry out, but others carry out as well, um, particularly caring roles. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about your thinking there, because that's not about the UK being a global leader in the next big tech. That's very much about a, a domestic workforce and how we shift how that's valued. Yes, I think it's actually a bit of both. So I refer to it as the everyday economy. And it's important in its own right, because it's where you know, huge numbers of people work in mm. uh, retail, in social care, in uh, education, uh, in distribution, in warehouses. It's important in its own right because everybody deserves the dignity of a job that pays a wage that you can afford to live on. And also that we end some of these practices like zero hour contracts, fire and rehire, um, having to wait uh, uh, for an age to get basic rights in the workplace. So it matters in its own right. But I would sort of slightly dispute this idea that it's somehow totally separate from the rest of the economy. Because even the most high-tech manufacturing, even the most successful city firm could not function without an everyday economy that is functioning properly. And that's why you know, I wrote a pamphlet seven years ago, I think it is now, called The Everyday Economy, which focused on the everyday issues of family, work and place. Because I do believe that they have been neglected in economics for too long. Uh, you know, this isn't necessarily about women in economics, but it is something that I feel very strongly that the increasing um, sort of, you know, economics as big mathematical models, I think it loses something of the everyday economy. And one of the reasons, you know, sometimes people say, you know, why should people be interested in economics? I mean, economics is, you know, our everyday lives. You know, are you paid a wage you can afford to live on? Can you put something aside for a rainy day? Can you stay in the place that you grew up and work there and start a family there? Or do you have to move away to get a job that you can uh, live on? You know, all of these are, are economic things. The fact at the moment that too many people don't have enough money in their purses and wallets at the end of the month. You know, the everyday economy is about the lives that we all live. Uh, and economics is relevant to, to every single one of us. You started by pointing out the relative lack of women in economics, and certainly the stats bear, bear that out. Only about a third of undergraduate economists are women. That pretty much hasn't shifted. If anything, it's probably got slightly worse over the last 20 years, even as other disciplines yeah. like maths and sciences have managed to attract more women in. Why do you think that is, and what, what would your pitch be to young women thinking about their future careers about why they should think about economics and why it matters. Yeah, I've got some sort of stats at the end of uh, the book, which even I was quite surprised by, that I think apart from computer science, 
um, economics is the, mm. the, the, the discipline that is most under, um, where women are most um, lacking. Um, uh, and that's a real shame. And it was my experience as well when I studied and also started working in economics. When I started working at the Bank of England in our graduate intake of 36, there were only six women. Um, it's a very impressive graduate intake. Matthew Hancock was in my graduate intake. Uh, only the best through the admission system there. Um, but um, of those six women, they're all gone within 10 years. Uh, so none of, none of us are at the bank today. Um, and certainly when I did my master's at the LSE, it was incredibly male-dominated. And the worrying thing about these stats is, is as you say, Gemma, it really hasn't changed as, as quickly as you'd want it to. Now, I also believe that um, you know, it's, it can't be what you can't see. Um, and I feel that in, in politics. I remember in 1997 when all those women got elected. Now, they were Labour women, but there were women and huge numbers of them. And they didn't look that different from me or you. And that was the first time, I guess, in politics that I thought, oh, wow, you know, maybe that's something that, that I could do. Because to be honest, before that, it did look very different mm. from you know, the world I inhabited. When I was born in 1979, there were just 19 women in Parliament. Uh, today, there are a third of MPs, so um, almost 220 are women. That's a huge change in my lifetime, but we're not seeing that same progress in economics. And part of the reason of this book is to write back into history some really amazing women to say, you know, this is something for everybody. Um, there are great role models, great women who have advanced both the theory and the practice of economics, you know, starting back in the Victorian era with Harriet Martineau and going right to today when you've got a woman heading up the World Trade Organization, a woman heading up the International Monetary Fund, a woman heading up the European Central Bank, a woman heading up the US Treasury. You know, there are loads of amazing women out there in economics today, and I hope more will join us in the future. Fantastic. Um, well, I want to allow plenty of time for questions, if we can. So uh, do you want to raise your hands if you've got questions? Um, I'll go first to Sharon at the back, and then we've got a question down here as well. I'll take a group of uh, two or three questions. <laughs> Hi, Rachel. Hi, Jim. Um, I'm sort of interested whether you've started to think about um, how you might run the budgets at the Treasury in a different way. And um, one of the shifts in 97 uh, was the introduction of gender budgeting, so sort of analysis of different proposals, impacts on yeah. men, women, etc. That sort of tapered away and, and paused. It, it's also quite a mechanic and quite tactical. And I wonder whether you can talk a bit about uh, your approach to bring gender more fully into the heart of um, budget processes within the Treasury. No. On the front here, and then we'll go back to the back afterwards. Uh, yes, um, um, the beauty of neoliberal kind of neoclassical economics was that you just do things, you just do things at the macro level, and everything falls into place. But if your if your desired outcome is changes in the terms of trade of women's employment, or specific things need to happen to the energy market, we're at the Institute for Government. What needs to change about the governance structures of, of the United Kingdom to make these things happen? It's kind of related to the previous question. Yeah. Great. And then there was a question at the back, and I shall take one from Gus. We'll take four. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Rachel, this is probably a bit cheeky, uh, asking a question given that I get to see more of you than most. Um, Ali McGovern, uh, Shadow Minister for Employment. Um, our, our economist Erin Hengel, she found that 
women economists submitting papers for peer review could expect to uh, experience much longer delays in getting them accepted than men. So how far do you think that the lack of women economists is merely a rational response to the situation and incentives women face? Question. And then we'll take one from Gus. Final. Um. Thank you. Um, I know that one of the missions is to increase the GDP per capita growth rate. Uh, and you have talked about women in the labor force, yet uh, a lot of what they do in the labor force doesn't get measured in GDP, uh, childcare and all the rest of it. And, and same goes for volunteering. So would you like to change the way GDP is measured? <laughs> ah, fantastic. So just as a reminder, in case you don't remember all of those. I've got them, I've got them. You've got them all? Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> Why did no one offer me a glass of wine when I got here? Because <laughs> uh, I right. wait for a glass of wine. Right. <laughs> so, I've got a question from two former permanent secretaries. <laughs> right, uh, Sharon, uh, starting with you. Yes, I, I remember um, when I first got elected in 2010 um, from opposition, actually particularly Yvette Cooper, um, as Shadow Minister for Women as well as Shadow Home Secretary, doing what the government had stopped doing, which was a gender analysis of all of the, the the fiscal events. I think we should bring that back because I do think that is really, really um, important. Uh, and, you know, if you're not measuring something, you're probably not going to do anything about it. So that is something that I would definitely want to, um, to return to. Um, on institutions, you know, I guess it's not that surprising. You know, somebody who used to work at the Bank of England does have quite a lot of respect for economic institutions. That'd be quite a big change in itself um, at the <laughs> Treasury. Um, and, you know, last year, when we had the Liz Trust quasi-quarting mini-budget, you know, the market turmoil that um, resulted was in part because of the unfunded tax cuts, but it was also because in the lead up to that budget, they had undermined the independence of the Bank of England, they had not allowed the OBR to do a forecast, and they sacked Tom Scholar. Uh, and all of those things contributed to this idea that the government was, not idea, the reality that the government were undermining economic institutions. Uh, and so I've committed to uh, a charter for fiscal responsibility that would lock in uh, some of those institutional frameworks that I think are so important. But I think there are other institutions that, that need to be created. Um, we've said, for example, that we would create a national wealth fund to invest alongside businesses in some of these opportunities, particularly in the green industries of the, uh, the future, in the same way that other countries. But we'd also get a return on that investment. So that builds on things like the British Business Bank, but that'd be a new institution to underpin this ambition that, that we have to have you know, the highest sustained growth in the, in the, in the G7. Um, um, Ali's question, there's a couple of really interesting examples, right, um, uh, in that uh, territory in the book. Uh, Anna Schwartz had to wait something like 25 years, I can't remember exactly, until she got her PhD because um, they said, because it, you, you, it was co-authored work, you can't get a PhD for it, even though men had co-authored work. She said, most people don't do nearly as much work for their PhD thesis as I did, but I'm not awarded it. And it took years and years before she got her PhD. Janet Yellen, um, two interviews many years apart. In the first interview, she basically said, I don't think there's any problems about women in economics. And then when she was interviewed a couple of decades later, she said, I actually want to disagree with what I said 
uh, and I see in the central bank and I see in the treasury um, uh, the sort of the cultures and the, um, the, um, the, the co-working that women tend to get excluded from. And as a result, they don't have the citations, they don't have the papers. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of truth uh, to what you say there. And it's something that Yellen reflected on in an interview, you know, much later in her career, uh, in a way that she hadn't, I think, you know, recognised, as she says, um, earlier uh, on. Um, Gus, I mean, measuring GDP. I mean, it would be nice to have some GDP growth to measure, frankly. Uh, <laughs> Uh, because the last 13 years, we haven't really had very much of it. Uh, and, you know, measure it whichever way you want. But the last 13 years, we've just been, you know, stagnating. And we need to turn that around. And I'm really ambitious of Britain. I think we can be so much better than what we're doing today. So I take your point that, you know, and I've spoken very you know, many occasions about the everyday economy, about, you know, what, what we measure matters. Uh, you know, also gave it in that uh, answer to the question that from, from Sharon, but I think my first priority would be actually to start growing the economy in a way that we haven't seen for a, a long time. And if we can grow the economy, it means living standards can increase, and it means instead of having to raise taxes 24 times, which is what the Tories have done these last 13 years, you can actually invest in public services without having to raid the pockets of ordinary working people. Brilliant. And just to add on the, the point about the way women are rewarded in academic economics, I saw an interesting working paper recently which had analysed reference letters for economists going on the job market and found that women were more likely to be praised for their hard work and men more likely for their innate intelligence. <laughs> and that that does seem to then affect their career trajectories thereafter, which I thought was um, fascinating if depressing. Um, <laughs> So um, we do have time for a few more questions. We have one online, which um, I will put to you. So the question coming in online is, why is there not more diversity of thought in economics? Do you think Keynes became the dominant orthodoxy despite its failings? Um, and I'll take a couple of other questions in the room as well. So go to Nick there. And please put your hand up if you'd also like to ask. Hello, uh, Nick Watt from um, BBC Newsnight. Um, Rachel Reeves, uh, in your interview with Heather Stewart in The Guardian, you were very critical of the way in which uh, the coalition uh, allowed benefits, universal credit, to be paid um, to not to the main carer but to the main earner, and you said that that had made women poorer. I was wondering, in light of your criticisms of the coalition's approach, how you're taking to being co-opted by George Osborne, who has been saying in recent days that you and Keir Starmer, with your uh, commitment to ironclad fiscal discipline, follow in that tradition uh, outlined by the coalition and their approach uh, to fiscal discipline. <laughs> Lauren, are there any questions in the overflow room? Anyone? Oh, I'm one. <laughs> okay, there's one more down the front in that case. <laughs> Hi, good evening. Kay Burley from Sky. A uh, quick question that I would ask if it was um, a man standing there as well, sitting there as well, so forgive me, uh, and one I would ask you on the telly. Um, family, constituency MP, um, preparing for government as Shadow Chancellor, how did you find the time? <laughs> Uh, okay, is that, uh, yeah. Yep. Um, so, on the question from the person online about diversity in economic thought, I, I don't agree that there's a lack of diversity in economic thought. In fact, 
the stories from this book shows that there's plenty of diversity of economic thought. Um, Eleanor um, Ostrom, who we haven't mentioned, um, who I haven't mentioned this evening, first woman to get the Nobel Prize, uh, she challenged this idea that economists will know the tragedy of the commons, that uh, land um, held in common will be uh, overused and depleted. And so the solution has got to be either privatisation and parceling it up into small portions or state control of it. And Eleanor Ostrom says there are plenty of examples around the world of where communal resources are managed in common by the community. And she sort of debunked this myth. Um, uh, and so that's quite sort of counterculture uh, to some economists. So I think there's plenty of diversity of economic thought, but you maybe have to look a little bit uh, harder to, uh, to find it. And what, actually, the interesting thing about Eleanor Ostrom is she, so she was the first woman to get the Nobel Prize, and she got it in the year of the financial crisis. I think that's a really interesting choice, that when mainstream economics had failed, uh, the prize went to a woman working in a, in a field that some economists didn't even think was economics. Uh, so she really is a, a, a remarkable woman. Um, Nick Watts, uh, two questions. Um, on the carer and the, uh, the earner, uh, Liz Kendall's in the room and she's Shadow Work and Pension Secretary. So, uh, um, but I did make this point in the book that ever since the family allowance was first introduced, an idea of the great independent MP, Eleanor Rathbone, it was always paid to the main carer and not the main earner. It's a battle then that, um, that um, Barbara Castle fought, that child benefits should be paid to the main carer, not the main earner. It's a battle that uh, Harriet and Yvette and Tessa fought um, in the late 90s, that tax credits would be paid to the main carer and not the main earner. And when universal credit was introduced, that went. And that is a redistribution from women to men. And I do think that is wrong. Uh, now, look, I know that we're going to be inheriting lots of different problems and things we want to turn around, but I do think that that is an issue. Um, because who's got the money and who controls the money does still matter, sadly, in, in too many um, relationships. And your other question is about, you know, whether the fact that I care about fiscal discipline makes me, you know, a sort of an... Uh, you know, a right winger. No, because who pays the price when fiscal discipline breaks down? It is ordinary working people. You know, it is everybody with a mortgage. It is everybody who is seeing their energy bills go through the roof. You know, you've got to have fiscal discipline. It is the underpinning of everything else. You can have all the growth ideas and all the investment in the NHS ideas, Wesley, uh, that you like, but it's got to be built on that platform of economic uh, stability, and it's great to see so many colleagues from the Shadow Cabinet here this evening. Uh, and the, the, the final question uh, from uh, uh, Kay, I think it's a yeah, totally fair um, question. Um, so, you know, my day job is pretty uh, consuming and I've got two primary school age um, children. But I wanted to carve out time to write this book. Um, in the acknowledgements, I acknowledge the research assistants that I had, uh, particularly on the facts and the detail uh, that went into the pen portraits um, of the women that I speak about. Um, you know, and that came from a range of sources, from books, from interviews, from articles, from Wikipedia. Um, and then on top of that, it's how they've influenced me. And actually, that was quite good for me 
to think about, actually, what do I want to achieve? What is it that drives me? What is it that, through my career as an economist, I want to bring to this role? And it's actually been, for me, quite a useful process in, in setting that out. But that is the sort of the contribution, I guess, that I'm making. These pen portraits, they could have been done by anyone. All these facts are out there in the public domain. What I'm doing is adding something which is how they've influenced me and how I'd want to take those ideas, if I have the opportunity, uh, into the Treasury. Thanks, Kay. And unfortunately, that does bring us to the end of our time. It feels like it's gone far too quickly. Um, Hopefully, that has given everyone here and watching online a bit of a taste for what is in Rachel's book, and hopefully you will be inspired to go out and buy it and read more about the, the women that she highlights and how that's shaped her own thinking about economics and give you perhaps a taste of what, what might happen after the next election, depending on the outcome. Um, but can you just join me in thanking Rachel for... Conference, you would have clapped when I mentioned fiscal discipline. You're just saying. <laughs>